Hey folks, just a quick trigger warning here. Um, I talk about Persona 3 and its suicidal themes during our roundtable, and that's around 7 or 8 minutes in. It's pretty brief, uh, but I just want to be sure for folks who are sensitive to that sort of thing, um, just make sure you button past that stuff when I start talking about Persona 3. And that's it. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello everyone and welcome to Fireside Friends. This is episode 6. I'm Ron Prasad and with me are my co-hosts Alan Ibrahim. It's me, the anime boy. And Katie Marie. Hello, howdy, it's me, the anime girl. <laughs> We're here to talk about anime apparently and <laughs> a bunch of other stuff, other pop culture items before talking about uh, Howl's Moving Castle for our shared experience. Uh, before we get to all of that, how is everybody doing? I know you had a night out, uh, Alan, so. Oh, yes, that's true. I'm, I'm coming back from a weird uh, evening attempt to go to a karaoke bar, which we did, and it was, you know, it's weird. I like the idea of being performative in front of other people. Uh, I think that's, like, good for your self-confidence, but I didn't get to. And also, bars are, are just bad places in general um, for being comfortable, um, mm-hmm. And boys are bad <laughs> like in general, so and drinks are expensive. So like the experience itself was not great, but I was with people that I enjoyed. So uh, maybe it was really about the friends that we made along the way. <laughs> I, um, I would like to apologize for the words to about that are about to exit my mouth. Oh, I'm so excited. <laughs> how was y'all's 420? Oh my gosh. <laughs> well. Uh, extremely disappointing because I saw that IHOP had 25 cent pancakes on the internet and then I went to the IHOP physically at like 3am and nobody was there except for the IHOP employees and the pancakes were not in fact 25 cents. They were regularly priced but we ate there anyway so. Living life on the edge for your 420. I had crepes for the first time on 420. You I had, had crepes on 422. Whoa! Wait. What is this? <laughs> I had crepes. What are crepes? Ooh, Katie, they're how like would you describe European crepes or crepes? Pancakes. Yeah. They're they're thin, like really thin pancakes with cream cheese or just other stuff stuffed in the middle. Oh, that sounds good. They're like burritos, but they're not folded uh, at an end. Mm-hmm. They're kind of just like rolled up. Mine was, uh, it was like orange jelly and then some other, like some nice powdered sugar. And I got with it a London fog, which sounds gross, but it's just like a nice Earl Grey tea latte situation with lavender. So yeah, it was a nice, that was my 420. It was pretty lit as the kids say. (laughs) I just had red velvet crepes. So that was pretty cool. That's clutch. Yeah. Here's the thing about 420 is that, Mm -hmm. look, I have no problem with people smoking weed. It should be legal, et cetera. Fine. Uh, weed culture is pretty silly, though, 
And as much as I wanted to escape 420, 420 couldn't escape me. Like, uh, on the night of 420, I think they called 420's Eve. Uh, I was playing <laughs> Destiny. All Hallowed's 420 Eve. I was playing Destiny with my friends, Andrew and John. And we were doing the Prison of Elders. And one of the levels uh, took four minutes and 20 seconds <laughs> to complete. Uh, and like it shows the leaderboard so yeah it took 420 uh to complete um and then on 420 uh i got invisible ink which is like a really cool cyberpunk like strategy like uh turn-based strategy game and uh i completed a level and i got 420 credits for completing the level <laughs> uh and then later that night i watched uh, the first Persona 3 movie, and in the Persona games, uh, you go through like all of the different days of the year, and one of the scenes of the movie took place on April 20th, so oh. could not escape it. What are the chances of like not just one of those things? Because one of those things is funny like on its own, but all of those things? It was ridiculous. I couldn't escape it and i didn't know what to do like i don't smoke so like i couldn't be like yeah nice it was just like <laughs> you know, everything so is really the like, type of person to say yeah nice <laughs> everything just trolled me all at once so it'd be like that sometimes may the dank be with you oh my gosh okay don't forget to leave cookies out for snoop dog <laughs> What? Is that a thing? Is Hold that... on, is that a no. thing? No. What people say? No. <laughs> That's fucking good. <laughs> so the transition, I mentioned Persona 3. That's a bad transition. If I'm going to be like, hey, I just mentioned Persona 3. I'm you... going to talk about Persona 3 more. You can try it again if you want. No, it's good. <laughs> okay, cool. Rock and Keep roll. all of this. Good. Um... Yeah, so I watched, uh, so Persona, I was going through Netflix, and one of the Persona 3 movies was on Netflix. Here's the thing about these movies, there are four of them. Oof. They made four movies that take, that are, like, based on the game, which is, like, at first, like, I was really taken aback, I was just like, wow, they made four movies based on this video game, but, like film franchises happen all the time over here so i guess i shouldn't be surprised it's just like definitely one of those cultural things where like a video game like a, a movie or like a series of movies based on a like a jrpg wouldn't fly here um but yeah those movies are really good well they have like the same weaknesses that the games do where it's like problematic and Sometimes the writing isn't like amazing, but like the animation of those movies are incredible. I'm saying I'm saying this obviously as like the anime beginner here, um, but yeah, the art style of those movies are incredible. Um, it's hard to tell if those movies are actually good uh, because they are really just parts from the game, just in movie form. There's some slight differences, like the main character. You in the game, you just choose uh, what your main character is, like the name of it, and 
of your character and like the stuff that you do uh, in terms of like social links and stuff and like dialogue choices. Uh, but like in the movie, it's just like a character and he has like lines of dialogue and kind of a personality. They make him kind of like apathetic and depressed, um, which is fitting for the themes of Persona 3. Persona 3 is very much a game about suicide and depression and admittedly i played persona 3 when i wasn't like a like didn't know how to read text basically um so for me watching the movies the themes are like way more overt like the beginning shot is like somebody committing suicide like jumping on the train tracks um and it's hard to watch those movies back to back because at some point, I just I just get like really bad like death anxiety, uh, so haven't been able to watch those like back to back. But um, yeah, they're really well done movies for what they are. Like if you play the games, uh, I think the the second movie is on Netflix. Um, and it's definitely worth checking out if you just want a really well animated uh, interpretation of the game. My question is: Is it because I, the only experience I have with the Persona series is, uh, or like the Shin Megami Tensei thing in general, is I played Devil Survivor, which is very different, um, less about relationships and more about capturing monsters and stuff in like apocalyptic Japan. And I've like watched a playthrough of Persona 4, so, mm-hmm. and I know that that game had really good cutscenes. Does the Persona 3 series of films look similar to or better than the Persona 4 cutscenes? It's the same kind of art direction obviously but it's like way higher quality very cool. uh because the persona 4's animation is better than 3's 3 has good art style but the like detail and stuff it's very rough around the edges uh it very much felt like a tv anime than a proper film and the movies definitely feel like huge like big budget well, I guess I I can't speak to how big the budget is. I have no experience with animation, but like they feel whole and complete and completely like fleshed out, and it's really cool to see. Um, now I have a question. Mm-hmm. You said it's like, um, you know, is it Persona? Is the movies Persona one, two, three, and four, or is it four movies of the same Persona game? It is. Uh... It is four movies based on Persona 3. Because these games are like really long, like 70 hour RPGs. So it's hard to fit everything into one movie. So it's basically just like four 90 minute films. And I think the last one just came out this year actually. um, Which is cool. Um, But um, yeah, so revisiting Persona 3 uh, led to me revisiting certain aspects of persona 4 uh mainly like the gender and sexuality politics of persona 4 um there is a character nato he is first presented as a trans or not he is presented as a male and then uh once you because the whole thing in persona 4 is like facing your true self and uh you do that by way of like boss battles and stuff and so you get to Naoto's boss battle and like you see like Naoto's shadow and it's like in front of like a surgery table 
Uh, and now Till like talks about how people don't respect him because uh, he's very young and he is biologically female. And then the second that the crew realizes that Nato is biologically female, they treat her as such, which is really gross considering that Nato presents as male throughout the entire game. Um, and so Persona 4 has this really like attitude of just like, you need to have surgery to be trans. You can't just identify as male, uh, which is really mm. troubling. Um, and they've really fucked that up. On top of that, so in the English version, they change Nato's pronouns to she, her, once you find out that she's biologically female. In the Japanese versions, they keep it male. But if you get, if you like raise Nato's social link to 10 in the Japanese version, uh, you, Nato will give you the option to speak in a higher pitch voice. And you can change Nato's pronouns once you reach level 10 with Nato, which is, like, so fucked up. It's very much the trope of, like, I'm going to fall in love with someone and they're going to show me my true identity. And it's like, man, they really, really messed up to the point where, you know, I'm still really looking forward to Persona 5, but, like, if that game has any queer characters, we'd be we'd be really lucky if they are shown any respect at all. Because man, they messed up really big time with Persona Four. That's really troublesome because now it's like, oh well, if you get to know somebody good enough, then their gender doesn't matter anymore. How does that make sense? Or uh, yeah, you are like my. The true savior who will show me that I'm actually a girl. No, it's (laughs) ridiculous. Wow, okay. So I've been thinking about that a lot. uh, Just because Persona 5 is coming out this summer. uh, And I'm probably going to play it because those games are gorgeous. And uh, otherwise the characters are like really cool. Um, But like, yeah. They got a lot of work to do, and I don't know if they're going to do it for five if they have queer characters. So, well, yeah. Hopefully, it's at least a step in the right direction if they do include any sort of queer character in further games, you know, because I mean, I I don't want to say at least they tried, but. But here's the thing there's also a gay character, and then they make him straight. Okay, well, because he is attracted to Naoto, who Naoto turns out to be biologically female. So the game basically just says, "Oh, it's okay because Naoto's actually a girl, so Kanji is actually straight." Wow, that's in a backwards direction. Yep. But yeah, that's Persona Four. <laughs> yeah, that's a bummer. Katie, do you want to go next? Uh, sure. Okay. So, over the past two weeks, I recently finished yet another anime. Um, this one is by the studio KyoAni, which they're known for, um, Ibeki Euphonium, K-On, uh, Hyoka, Tamako Market. Uh, typically, like, bright, really, um, high-quality animation. Uh, 
they have like heartwarming stories and they're typically they have emotional aspects but they're always fun to watch and always beautiful Kiwani is known for being um, relatively like how do I put this family friendly for the most part and um, they're they're well renowned for high quality animation so Myriad Colors Phantom World is the show that I watched and this is probably um, one of the first shows from KyoAni, um, aside from Beyond the Boundary, that has like etchy themes to it, meaning like light sexual content. Like you know, there's a girl with bigger breasts, and she'll like grab them some at times, and that kind of thing. Um, so I went into this like already excited because I I am a huge fan of KyoAni animation, and like they just always have high quality stuff and I've seen you know music videos and previews and gifs on the internet and it was all it was so beautiful beautiful effects and stuff like that so I was like yes I am ready to watch this my friends told me that it was relatively boring while being flashy so I was like kind of worried but and you know I went into it and it was I I really really loved this show um and that is I don't know. It's weird for me to say because I normally agree with my friends on, like, opinions of anime. They were like, you know, in this show they do the same thing for every episode, but I very much disagreed. Um, now, background information about the show. Uh, so, in this universe, um, people developed the ability to see phantoms, which are kind of depicted as, like, mildly pixelated, um, but still very much real. Uh, in this world, they have physical effects in this world. Some of them are evil, some of them are benevolent, they have magical powers, and that sort of stuff. And with their introduction, there were children born who have abilities that also affect phantoms. So that could be combat-wise, um, people who could summon phantoms, people who could steal them away, that sort of stuff. Um, So you follow this group of main characters who go to a school specifically about, like, phantom study and using your abilities and that sort of stuff. They have their own club, and they kind of go around, deal with their own personal issues, and fight phantoms. And it is so cute, and it is so heartwarming. All of the characters, in my opinion, are really well-rounded. They're very unique. They all have their different personalities. Um, They may definitely play into like traditional anime tropes you know like the sundere girl um but i don't know i i really enjoyed it it was really cute it was really beautiful it was so fun until the last two episodes where i straight cried um did not like how they did that to me (laughs) did you so you didn't queer cry you straight cried yeah i Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but it, I, oh my gosh, it's, um, it definitely, uh, puts it, there's no, um, what's really refreshing about it is there is no, like, completed straight romance in the show. Um, and by, in that respect, I also don't think it's much of a harem anime, it's like things tend to kind of go around if there's a male protagonist and, you know, a lot of, 
female side characters. Um, and oddly enough, the male protagonist is the one who sucked the most. So good <laughs> on you, Phantom Cut World. I, I appreciate that. Um, but I don't know. It has it has a huge emphasis on like familial bonds and um, sort of platonic relationships and building those kinds of things rather than straight going like you know actually straight this time like hetero straight relationships and a dude who gets all the ladies and that sort of stuff i really appreciated the direction i really appreciated the rope like the just overall kind of lack of romance and the action the colors the different phantoms everything they brought in was like this has a glowing review for me this is one of my favorite shows because i was able to actually binge watch this um whereas like other anime that i've watched you know i have to take breaks after like three episodes and then i'll come back to it later this one i finished in like two days i watched it as quickly as possible and i just really liked it i don't know it was really cute aside from the the etchy stuff which typically makes me very uncomfortable um just because I don't like uh, over-sexualized females and that sort of stuff. Um, but other than that, A+. Plus. I'm doing the, like, okay hand thing symbol. <laughs> so. The Twin Peaks butler mo- motion, as I call it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the 100 emoji. Yes. <laughs> I'd, I'd rate it, like, 8 out of 10 kind of thing. Um, so it is. it has become personally one of my favorites and i would rewatch it and yeah oh one thing i wanted to talk about that they did is um their color schemes are really interesting because they don't use black in the show huh. at all until you meet the final villain um even oh that's cool the outlines are like magenta they're like this kind of deep hot pink color um and everything is has got like this nice magical feel to it so that's cool the fact that they you know play around with color schemes and have specific palettes in mind to keep uh you know sort of feels around certain characters as well as just like plot points Mm -hmm. i really appreciate that as i've mentioned before like in their past podcast when we were talking about uh the last unicorn color palettes are really important to me and i especially loved how they utilize this in this show so yeah awesome i have noticed you mentioned those before like how you're way into your you think about color palettes a lot and i do too but like not i don't think i do it consciously and so i'm just curious what it is that you find really important and significant about like analyzing and and, and considering palettes and, and visual language when it comes to color in the stuff that you uh, experience Well, I have been an artist uh, for the vast majority of my life, and I did uh, an international baccalaureate study in higher level art um, when I was in school. So a lot of the time in my pieces, I very much incorporated uh, specific colors into specific moods and emotions. So I most of my research I did was on like how do colors impact emotions? what emotions are associated with specific colors. And I've had um, pieces that without, like, you know, without shading and without outlines really that were just colors um, 
not necessarily like abstract art, things that had, you know, it had physical form. Like I would draw a portrait of a person, but I very much picked the colors to incite like specific emotions and to get a specific reaction from people. Um, so I don't know. I That's something that I've always noticed. Um, and I think that it, while it might not be a conscious decision for people, you know, there's studies done where you walk into a room, you see like a blue room, it's the exact same temperature as a red, as a red room, but they will say the blue room feels cooler and the red room feels hotter. So I really like seeing people utilize those subconscious um, ways that people interpret color and how we kind of relate it to our own emotions. And feelings. So yeah, that's, that's really how interesting. I feel about it. Huh. Yeah, I usually don't think about color palettes. That's usually just like a subconscious choice. So uh, I'm glad that you and a lot of artists probably focus in on things that most people probably don't, which is really cool. Well, well thank you. I think even if you don't um, actively realize it, I think it still definitely has an effect on people and how mm-hmm. you view media and how you view certain different scenes. So when somebody has a handle on that, I'm like, yes, good job. You're making me feel things. And you're probably making <laughs> other people feel things too, whether they realize it or not. So, mm-hmm. Cool. Alan? Uh, what? You want to go next? <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> I always, I'm always... On this roundtable show that we do <laughs> where we talk about stuff. Sorry, I've just always wanted to just to part the kimono. I've always wanted to be able to do that. Did you just say part the kimono on this podcast? <laughs> no. Yeah, well, we're gonna cut this part all out, and I'm just gonna you're gonna I'm gonna come back from so Alan, and then I'm gonna talk. So <laughs> is that is that okay, Ryan? I'm sorry, I don't like to make you do editing. Oh no. Oh Look, what? Not, I watch me not edit this out. Oh you know, yeah, yeah, that'd be really great. Please I I don't it. want the fans to hate me. Our fan base loves Katie and they love Ryan. What if they're like, "Ugh, Alan's the heel of the group." <laughs> I know. Okay. Yeah, sis dude. Ugh, right? Okay, I'll whatever. <laughs> the cross I guess I have to bear. <laughs> I'm sorry for laughing so loud. That was funny. No, it's fine. Um okay, I'm just going to come back in. <clears throat> uh yeah, so the experience that i enjoyed this week that i really wanted to talk about was um a piece of literature actually the book snow crash by neil stevenson which i've been reading i'll just say as part of a course that i just finished called technology and literature which was an elective course taught by one of my favorite my favorite professors and it centered on how technology is influenced and affects our modern and or its contemporary culture and the literature that you know science fiction literature and Snow Crash, to me, represents the achievement of decades and decades of attempting to say something important and not problematic about about technology and about society. Because for us, this is coming after a semester where we started by talking about uh, H.G. Wells' The Time Machine, which straight up has like a lot of racial uh, oh, stuff Jesus. that's not cool. Yeah, and it's like, man. So we start with that, and then we move into like Foundation by Asimov, which like good on you for making a cool science book, but I completely disagree with your politics. And then player, so like you, you're starting to see the evolution at this point. And then we have the player of games by Ian M. Banks, which is more about like, hey, the Margaret Thatcher uh, administration was like really harmful for like pe- regular people. And uh, if we work together, we can like it's fine for us to live in a society where we don't have to struggle. Capitalism teaches us that we need to struggle to be good, and we don't actually. And so that's like, oh, we're getting somewhere. 
And we talk Neuromancer, which is like, hey, what if corporations owned everything and we were screwed? And I love Neuromancer. You know, I read it for the first time when I was 16, and it's Space one of my favorite Space Rastafarians. Space Rastafarians <laughs> are so good. They're so... Let's just say I wrote my first paper for this course about that book. or No, the second one. And then I, I mentioned Space Rastafarians. Yeah, they're the best characters in that book, um, Malcolm in particular. But uh, Have that you book... seen any of the... Uh... Oh, who's the author? I'm sorry, I'm blanking. Of that book? Yeah. William Gibson. Have you seen any of the William Gibson written episodes of the X-Files? No, but I hear they're crazy. Is it? Did he do video games? He did first-person shooter. Oh, that's shooter. the one. It's not called video games. It's called first-person shooter. Yep. Yep. Have you, have you seen that one? No, but I know about it. Oh, see boy. Clips from it. Yeah. It's I've never treat. actually watched the X-Files. <gasps> it is a treat. What? I want to. I have a list running of episodes that I'm going to watch someday. It's, it's on- a deep well. I haven't watched. All. I know someone who has watched all of it, but I can't. It's a lot of show. Yeah, I don't think I would watch all of it. I'm just going to pick the interesting stuff. In the anyway, look up, look up first person shooter viewers uh, because it's both a train wreck and just a beautiful piece of art. <laughs> Yeah, and, anyway. and Gibson does a lot of stuff with it's just like playing with theories of the mind and so, like he he coined the term cyberpunk. That word exists because of Neuromancer, I believe. Uh, and it's just like that book is brilliant, but comes out at the end like really sad and kind of bleak about the future and like oh maybe our identity is defined by the way that we are told to think and told to present ourselves. Um, and then Snow Crash is a very interesting parallel because it is a very um, brash but like positive message about society. Because it depicts a world where um, it's so similar to our own, but there's just enough differences that you're like, this could just happen. Because um, it's very much about identity, both like racial and class and all sorts of different ways that we define ourselves linguistically and all that stuff. And it's a world where it's an America where, you know, everybody lives, every sort of group of people lives in their own corners of society called burb claves like their own little suburbs that are locked off like there's a caucasian only society which is like super terrible and they exclude people of color and then there's a exclusively uh african american society and they all just are like lean into their own stereotypes because they think oh you know if i choose to identify by my stereotype then it's not bad um so it has a lot to say about that kind of stuff and i find it really engaging for that reason um and the main character is, is actually half Korean, half African-American. And it's, like, really cool that they don't... Like, it's not... I, I always say, like, oh, it's re- this, this character is well-written because they don't make a big deal out of the fact that they're a woman or that they're a person of color. But with Snow Crash, they absolutely make it a point that the main character, whose name is... And this really says a lot about what the type of book this is. Um, the main character's name is Hero Protagonist. <laughs> Okay. Um, yeah. So this book really likes to take the piss out of its own like, universe. Is it H I R O? Yes. Or... Exactly. Nice. Okay. Uh, which <laughs> no, yeah, they could have just put the E N and it would be fine though. Well, just... Hero is a it, it has Asian influence. So, I yeah. know, I know, but still, <laughs> wouldn't it be funny? It, yeah, if they just leaned into it a thousand percent. Yeah. Uh, and. <laughs> hero is uh, a boy <laughs> who goes around the metaverse which is their version of like cyber or cyberspace um, and has dual katanas and relies on simple technology and like rules the metaverse and has a friend who's like a punky young skateboarding girl named YT which stands for yours truly 
and uh, they go on um, adventures. And he, he starts the book off by working for the pizza, a pizza com- delivery company. And the first chapter of the book is this amazing like high-speed chase because in the future, pizza delivery is so commoditized that like it's all about like how fast can you get it there, not how good the pizza is. So it just mm-hmm. becomes this like race against other trucks and all this stuff. Um, and it's it's so it goes from there like a you know furthering the whole theme of identity the second half of the book becomes about straight up neurolinguistics and how language has has changed our society and how we can use language to to control different parts of like different classes and different races and all that stuff like you know our language affects who we are and how we talk to other people and how we communicate and exist in the space of other people um and I can't, I can't get across enough how entertaining of a read it is. It's very long. Um, Neil Stevenson has a tendency to not care about telling a story. He more just wants to like let you sit in a world and then like let, watch it go by. So it's like I'm gonna look at this book right now. It's like 450 pages, um, and like a couple things happen. <laughs> like a plot mm. gets set up and then just happens. So it's a lot of just discussion of the world and where they are and and who everyone is and how they these things look. So it's very vivid and beautiful. Um, Stevenson also put out a book recently. He still writes um, called Seven Eves, which I'm very interested in, which similarly deals with identity, but in the context of like, I think if I've read correctly, it's about like the world, like our planet is going to just run out of energy at some point. We got to go somewhere else. So it's way mm-hmm. more bleak than Snow Crash. Um, if you'll allow me, I'd like to just read this paragraph from the book that I really think highlights like how... Um, cool it's it's style of writing is and how like it how it how it talks about itself man you came with citations and everything all right <laughs> <laughs> uh okay so this is this is the second page of the book and uh the beginning is referring to a character called the deliberator who is later revealed to be hero so when he delivers pizza and works for the pizza, pizza company who i should have mentioned is also the mafia like the pizza company and the mafia are one and the same now um, <laughs> okay it's a great but it That's makes sense. some like Italian stereotypical stuff. No, but it, but it makes because that exactly they're they're leaning into their own stereotypes. Like that's the point of all of this stuff is like these yeah. characters once they admit their own stereotypes, they're like it's fine when yeah. I do it. Um, and so he's working for them in the beginning, and his name is the Deliverator. And so the the paragraph basically goes. I'm gonna put on a fun little narrator voice. <clears throat> Why is the Deliverator so equipped? Because people rely on him. He is a role model. This is America. People do whatever the fuck they feel like doing. You got a problem with that? Because they have a right to. And because they have guns and no one can fucking stop them. As a result, this country has one of the worst economies in the world. When it gets down to it, talking trade balances here, once we've brain drained all our technology into other countries, once things have evened out, they're making cars in Bolivia and microwave ovens in Tajikistan and selling them here. Once our edge in natural resources has been made irrelevant by giant Hong Kong ships and dirigibles that can ship North Dakota all the way to New Zealand for a nickel, once the invisible hand has taken all those historical inequities and smeared them out onto a broad global layer of what a Pakistani brickmaker would consider to be prosperity, you know what? There's only four things America can do better than anyone else. Music, movies, microcode software, high-speed pizza delivery. Wow. It's all over. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, and it's from 1992, and all of the stuff that's in there just sounds so painfully real to today. The way they talk about the economy yeah. and the way they talk about like race and and culture, like it's so just like, hey, this is what we're doing. It's gonna go. It's gonna get worse if we don't f- consider it, because you know the character is basically the like thesis of the whole thing is just that he's arguing that 
um, if we allow ourselves to be defined by the corporate culture and the outside world, then we're going to fall into these boxes and these stereotypes and never escape them. And that's going to be our life. And we won't be able to advance anymore because Stevenson now comes out a lot about like, he's very much a proponent of the space industry in which it wishes that America would go to space more. Mm-hmm. Um, and so his main, ca- his main characters who he very much identifies as like, they're doing it right. Uh, they live on the periphery. They live on the world where, where cultures clash and they, and people make you reconsider your own points of views, like always be accepting of other views because you know, that is how we progress is yeah. we, is we listen and we share with other people. Snow Crash is dope, is what I'm saying. <laughs> Just dope. 420. Straight dope. Hashtag 420, please. <laughs> <clears throat> so, yeah. Cool. Thank you. Uh, Alan, um, so I forgot to write it down in this here Google Doc, but I told you to watch that finale of Better Call Soul yep. so you can talk about it. Uh, we'll probably, we, we'll, we won't go into, into specifics because kind of don't want to spoil this brand new thing uh but what do you think of that show i really appreciate that they use their season finales and breaking bad did a similar thing but um we don't need to keep making the comparison to that show but like they take the finale and just say like all right we are building on things but this is also just like a experiment with poetry and cinematography like we're we're, we're telling a singular story about you know something um there's so many scenes in this finale that I was just like, I want to watch this over and over again, but it's giving me so much anxiety. Like, holy shit. There's so much ten- tension and quiet in this show. That's the yeah. big difference between the two. With Breaking Bad is like, Better Call Saul is a show about like the quiet spaces between moments um, mm-hmm. and, and how people manipulate quiet space and that kind of thing. Um, so it always it always bums me the hell out that people will say like, oh, it's really boring or nothing happens because it's exactly. like you're not watching it if nothing's happening. I, I don't I don't I hardly see anybody talk about this show. It's you and like one other person I follow on Twitter, uh, and that's it. Like it's weird because uh, I think this show's really good, and I feel like uh, I haven't seen Breaking Bad in a long time, but like. The impression that I get by watching Better Call Saul is that they get a lot of mileage out of just simply caring about its characters and, like, the nuances and their behavior and, and their actions. That they just get a lot more out of just character drama and character development than Breaking Bad ever did. Right, because a lot of the people on Breaking Bad were just, like, two-dimensional. They were, you know, two 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 and a half dimensional Like, they gained dimension over time, but you're like, yeah, I kind of... If you died, I wouldn't be the saddest in the world. But, like, there's a small enough cast on Better Call Saul, and you yeah. know where some of them are going that you're not tra- constantly thinking, like, are they going to get killed next week? Because, like, right. the main couple aren't going to die because this is a prequel to Breaking Bad. Like, they're not going to um, be killed. So you're just more invested. Like, not that's the problem with Breaking Bad is a lot of it is invested in, like, what's going to happen. Right. But Bre- Better Call Saul, I always say, is, like, talking about what's happening right now. Like, the sniper, there's a sniper rifle scene which is probably one of the best depictions of uh, like u- sniper rifle use in a television show in this episode um, where a character is just waiting and, and loads their scope and, and like loads a bullet and they almost fetishize the way they zoom in on the bullet and the way that it clicks and all the noise and going following the camera down the scope and then, you know, <laughs> like the tension just builds and builds and then the, the scene doesn't end with a shot being fired is all I'll say. That's not yeah. how it ends, like... Oh. Yeah, it doesn't escalate. It doesn't like, you know, do a jump, like scare. Or it doesn't really surprise you. It just kind of, 
is a thing and it ends uh and it's like really cool just the way it's not it just doesn't care about bombast and you know raising tension it raises tension in a much different way but not in the same way of just like oh someone died this episode you know yeah i think if people watch the breaking bad and they're like i want and they care about the characters and they're willing to just like listen because you can kind of watch a lot of breaking bad and not pay attention and just be like oh weird stuff's happening with this walt fella like better call saul <laughs> absolutely rewards your attention hey i'm gonna tune in the breaking bad and watch this walt fella this walt fella is gonna sell some meth drugs uh but better call saul like, 420 blaze it there you go good job. oh my gosh i'm so proud of you um better call saul starts with like a semi like a fast forward but not forward past breaking bad and then it goes back way back before yeah. either of those things and never calls back to that until like the end of the season or something or the beginning of the next one there's um, some of it in like the middle of season oh interstitial stuff. yeah yeah you're yeah. right but so you gotta like listen and pay attention and and also it, you know uh jimmy who is the character that becomes saul goodman um bob odenkirk's character is the least interesting character on that show like it's mike yeah. it's kim and it's chuck i think and the stuff that the people that interact with Jimmy are cool, but I just find him as a character like hard to get invested in. I don't think he's the worst, but just I I feel like so much of it is just exploring the nuances that it's hard to be like this one character is the best or this one character is yeah, the worst. Yeah. They all have their weaknesses and some are like bigger weaknesses than others and some characters are straight up abusive. But, like, everybody is a fleshed-out character, and that's really refreshing to see. And just a fascinating way that they handle a main character with a a mental illness. Um, yeah. Psychosomatic disorder. Like, they don't... It's a... Again, so like, talking about race and Snow Crash, like, it is a deal. It is a big deal. But it isn't the only aspect of that character. Especially mm-hmm. in the second season, they take that character and just go in some very fascinating directions and don't let their illness define them, which is very good for like tv writing to do because that illness can refine the character but not define them is how i usually yeah. say it. and you can say that about all of the characters in the show i think where you from breaking bad you know them as this one thing but they're also they also have all of these this different stuff going on right right which is really cool so um i have a question i i mean i haven't seen either shows i've seen like clips and things like that um, mm-hmm. But you were mentioning um, what people do between quiet spaces and like how you have to listen and stuff like that. Is there um, an emphasis on audio and the way that they manipulate that, whether it's like not having music or having music and stuff like that that you've mm-hmm. noticed in the show? Or is that like a special aspect? I would say that there's more of an emphasis on the craft of filmmaking more than anything else doesn't matter like there are like very quiet moments um but on the whole i would say that more so than breaking bad there are a lot of moments that feel like just like an art film or like so like it's made by people who care about the craft of filmmaking more than anything else i would say and and sorry go ahead Oh, no, because um, for me, when you were using that sort of language and, and describing it in that sort of way, it uh-huh. definitely reminded me of like the birds from, you know, by Alfred Hitchcock and how he 
didn't implement music in his movie so that um, things were more stressful and felt more real. Or like Jaws, you know, the uh-huh. theme for Jaws only played when the actual shark was there. Like, you know, there are scares when they're like, oh, right. is Jaws there? Well, if the music doesn't play, then no. So um, just based on like the descriptions you were giving and stuff through your talks yeah. about Better Call Saul, I was like, do is that sort of audio resource utilized to give I would those say yeah, I would say it's less about that and more just like Breaking Bad is so obsessed with bombast and shock and Better Call Soul is kind of the opposite of that is how I would you know kind of phrase that. It's it's the kind of show where the ammu- the weaponry is insults and the ammunition is like backstory is how I because it's all like all the interesting stuff on Better Call Saul is the conversations and the arguments that people have and that's sort of where the comment that I had about Quiet comes from is that within a conversation like in a real life conversation Quiet is used to punctuate moments or to emphasize something and there are a lot of moments of that because they don't feel the need to rush in any episode because they're not trying to get to an action climax because there's almost never one of those in better call Saul. it's more it's like it's conversational and it's very like people are going to talk and i'm going to be really interested almost like in a west wing sort of way but you know the dialogue is actually uh tolerable Ooh. Ooh. I, and i bring <laughs> up the fact that it feels like people the people who made this care about filmmaking and that there is a moment in this finale where somebody ends up in a hospital and uh, there is just one long shot and this is like one take uh well i don't know how many takes they did but like this is one shot of it's like a a really long scene of a really close shot of someone so i'm not gonna say the character obviously but like somebody's head as they're laying down on the hospital bed and they're kind of just like having this panic attack and the camera is at a really weird weird angle where it's like towards like the top of their head like angling down and all there's just like all these bright lights and this is a shot that goes on for a good two or three minutes and it's like they aired this on television <laughs> and it's like I'm really like, uncomfortable. only slightly deep cable like amc yeah. you know <laughs> so that's that's why i bring that up but yeah a lot of really good character moments a lot of good really good imagery just throughout the whole season. If you're interested in any of that, then you had better call Saul. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm so proud of myself tonight. I'm on fire. My God. <laughs> you know, just sometimes when you're on <laughs> and then you say it and it becomes less true. <laughs> if you were busted on weed on 420, you better call Saul. Good. Let's take a Good. break.
And we're back, and our shared experience for this episode is Hayao Miyazaki's Howl's Moving Castle that was released in 2004. Uh, I think I picked this one, well I didn't pick this one, I just I just said that I wanted to watch like an anime film, just because I don't watch a lot of those in my spare time, uh, and I've never, uh, again, I'd like to apologize for the words that are about to come out of my mouth. I've never seen a Miyazaki film before this one. Uh, yeah. Dramatic that was a good gasping. Noise. Uh, <laughs> it took a lot of air. I'm sorry. So yeah, uh, what are everybody's general thoughts on this movie? Um, well, Howl's Moving Castle is probably my second favorite Studio Ghibli film that I've seen. Um, behind Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, and I saw it at a relatively young age um like for the first time because i don't know my friend was really into um studio ghibli movies and had always been so you Mm -hmm. know when i was in elementary school was the first time i saw it and i really liked it um it's definitely uh, i guess the best way to describe it is like a different kind of disney um is how i view certain Studio Ghibli movies. So it was kind of, I guess, what really led me into liking anime because prior to watching films like this, I hadn't been interested in any sort of foreign films or, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, So it was a transformative experience for me, and I've grown to really love it over the years, um, especially for its soundtrack and things like that. So, Mm -hmm. Absolutely gorgeous soundtrack, yeah. And a lot of the visual stuff in this movie is just off the charts. But um, my experience with Studio Ghibli is weird. As a kid, I watched uh, Spirited Away uh, like frequently because it was on television a lot. And it's a it's probably the most easily digestible, like Americanized uh, Studio Ghibli film. Um, at, at least it was for a while. I've heard Ponyo is even more so. But um, I saw that a while ago. And then in the last couple of years, I sort of started doing this thing unintentionally and it's now become a ritual where i watch a new, one miyazaki film that i have not seen once a year and so mm-hmm. it started with princess mononoke which is incredible and then uh, my neighbor totoro which is really interesting um and fun and adorable and i always think that i saw nausicaa but i did not i actually saw laputa castle in the sky which is also really good and it's one of the less talked about ones um but so this is the one that i, I had always heard up there with spirited away very easy and to understand and to and to sort of grasp and um i, d- I would definitely say that about the first half i say that i think the first half is this very like small scale self-contained story with like co- coherent themes not to say that the back the back half is not coherent but it just kind of explodes in a way after a certain yeah, point yeah i agree um i can't remember the exact scene but there was like for a while i was like oh this movie is about aging this movie is about you know adapting to a changing world and that kind of thing uh mm-hmm. but and it's you know again it continues to be about that that's the thing with Miyazaki films is that they don't abandon themes until the very end they never have to uh but it's just so much stuff happens like there's a lot of just like weird lore dumps and the character of Howell becomes really interesting and weird and it, it, it kind of just feels like it's pulling from so many things at the end that yeah. it like lost a a single singular feel that the beginning did yeah i i think i agree with you there where um i really enjoyed the film 
Um, it was a good like primer for all of the other films that I'm sh- sure I'm going to watch. And um, at first, I thought the film was making uh, some commentary on like the patriarchy because you know towards the beginning of the film is it Sophie is her name yep Sophie yep uh she get like the first like 10 minutes are just like her getting hit on over and over and over which i thought was weird um but then she ages she gets like that spell that ages her and she can't tell anyone about it even though like hal figures it out pretty quickly um and yeah, so a lot of the movie I felt like was about aging and about looking through life through a different lens. Um, just because our experiences just make us, you know, view life differently. Um, so I definitely got that out of... The what the scene that comes to mind is like when Hal takes Sophie to uh, the little house in the middle of like a, the meadow and she just has like this really optimistic you know feeling that she didn't necessarily have when she was younger um and so yeah i definitely took that away from it but then and towards the second half and it's like around where they go to the castle i think is where stuff kind of goes off the rails where oh where they like, go to visit the queen yeah, yeah. That's that's where, actually exactly where I think it it kind of changed for me. Yeah, where it's like more about not more about but like it it hinges on a lot of the magic stuff which I didn't really I didn't feel like I had got a grasp on necessarily. Um and it just that part of the movie is just so abstract and not to say it doesn't make any sense or anything, but like there's that scene where like she goes back to Hal's and uh, Flame Guy. Calcifer. They go. She goes back to the childhood, and it's like, wait, you got here from a door, you know, like, like in a mountain or something. Yeah, this is like that scene from Scott Pilgrim or something. <laughs> um, so that was really weird and abstract. And probably makes some sort of sense in the context of this, like, dreamlike fantasy world. Which I thought, you know, that's not a new concept, really. So I thought it was fine. I just wish I understood what it was pulling from more. Even though, like, I didn't hate it as a film, necessarily. I really enjoyed it, again. uh, But yeah, it was kind of like end of Akira. Just like, wait, what? (laughs) Yeah. I definitely understand where you're coming from because um, as much as, you know, we envelop ourselves in different media, we aren't from the same culture that this movie was produced in. So there are things like as lore related and just general like societal understandings and colloquial things that we won't fully grasp. And like, you know, I guess... One thing for me that uh, always kind of, um, like, you were talking about specific things that you didn't necessarily grasp, especially related to, like, the magic part of it, and when they visited the queen in the castle, um, the, like, little people, like, swirling around with, like, the kind of primal music sort of themes and that sort of thing. I didn't really get that myself. Um, yeah. Uh, 
and you know there are things that I think are like kind of random um like the turnip head um and that oh, kind yeah. of thing when he turns into the, the prince at the end I'm like okay why yeah. um but totally um I I don't know I think I mean me knowing Hayao Miyazaki and like listening to interviews with him and how he talks and stuff like that he has very specific views and he has a lot of messages that he tries to accomplish um so like he's very he's very anti-war he's very yeah very obvious um he very much uh talks about like the relationship between nature and um modernization and machines and he also really likes strong female characters um typically they're younger uh in like almost all of his movies this is a common theme um and they're the ones who are saving the like the guy who's supposed to be you know the end-all be-all wonderful dude um the only exception i really think is in you know uh princess mononoke specifically um but yeah there there are all these themes and i i like that there's a consistency um not just you know from the beginning to the end of Howl's Moving Castle, but also in all of his works. Um, but again, there are cultural differences where like we might not understand the lore and like certain mythological things or just societal pieces. So I I actually really loved the way the war was depicted in this film. Yeah, it's one of the most poignant things. That's just like. There is just a war, and bombs are just coming down. You don't necessarily know the reason, and the reason really doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. It's just something that is ongoing. And I thought, like, obviously, with Miyazaki's anti-war stance shows, and obviously this is a film from fucking Japan, but, like, (laughs) the way that they handle it in this film is just like, yeah, there's a war, uh... And it's senseless, and uh, it's not a thing that uh, they don't go into like the parties involved or anything. It's just like this is a horrible thing that is hurting innocent people, and that was just like really poignant and just it was really impressive. I felt and beautiful the way they handled that. Um, What's oh go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh. What always was really, really impactful to me was how the machinery looked, um, particularly like the warships themselves and um, how they have like, I don't know, they seem so like ugly to me and they always scared me, um, especially as a child, like watching the movies and the movie. And I don't know, it was just the design of the warships themselves against like the sky because the entire sky changes colors um when it gets into like the bomb dropping portion and like you know Mm -hmm. these warships are flying around and stuff and they like have wings that flap and all these strange parts not even talking about howl's castle itself but the um the warships in particular always really unsettled me just i don't know what it is about the machinery or the imagery used but you know they're kind of rusty and they're so alien um 
Mm-hmm. I don't know. That that was always very impactful to me and kind of frightening. So Yeah. I very much appreciate those elements. I I always find it fascinating how you can trace back all of the elements of a traditional Miyazaki film and and sort of determine what he's like as a person. Like a lot of his uh the reasoning for choosing to have female protagonists is that he had a, a child and had like a, um, did he have a child? Is that correct? Or was it just like family friends? Cause I know Totoro is based on like his obsess uh, his love of rural life and also the like young girls that he, um, had family friends who had daughters. Like he has these relationships to younger girls that he's just like, these people have really interesting lives and they see the world in a way that I want to sh- like explore. Um, and his anti-war thing comes from, you know, Japan's history and his history as an anti-war person. And just like the the choice to focus on insignificant, seemingly insignificant events that just provide dimension to the story and to the to the world. I think there's actually a, a word in Japanese for that type of scene where it just like isn't meant to progress anything. It's just meant to sort of let the moment hang. Um, I took a lot of notes on this this movie and one of the scenes like that was when Howell is using calcifer to make eggs and bacon and it's just it's just like isn't food beautiful and isn't just like the process of cooking something magical and wonderful because it's just it's all real like even though the the bacon is like cartoonishly large all the stuff that's happening is just real and then the choice to show that calcifer eats the eggshells and then like that goes hum 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 it's like so (laughs) It's so cute, but it just conveys so much of like the relationship between Calcifer and uh, and Howell, and like moments where um, uh, Sophie is outside and is buying fish from the market. And I don't know if y'all picked up on this, but she's about to buy a, a fish from the guy, and then he he says, "Oh, look up! There's like you know people are attacking," and everyone leaves their po- leaves their positions and goes to look at the thing, and no one steals food. Like Sophie could have very easily just been like, "Well, this is a chance for free fish." But she doesn't because she's a polite human being and like that's a very Japanese thing is to just like be obsessively polite because it's worth it. Um, just like these little moments that you're like, oh, this is so much of of what Miyazaki is is trying to get across. Even when the, the main story is going all over the place, you're still being grounded by these very real, quiet, again, with the talking about like in between scenes uh, moments. Mm hmm. Totally. Uh, can we talk about Hal as a character? I was about to say that exact thing, actually. Yeah. Yes. Oh, we're in step tonight. Um, uh, does Howell make anyone else feel weird gender things? Because Howell doesn't seem gendered until like way later, and it's just he has a very like androgynous form, and I don't want to say like oh, Howell is trans because like gender expression and gender identity are two different things, but like he definitely got more androgynous and feminine looking as the movie went on and i don't know how much of that is intentional or how much of that is just coincidence that he was just drawn that way i don't know but i definitely picked up on that well i i for sure think that there is some sort of exploration in femininity in this um particularly with howell because you know he's obsessed with his appearance like his hair color very much matters to him he has longer hair um you know he wears earrings all these kind of stuff that, you know, we traditionally consider feminine. Um, but one thing I have noticed is um, Japan tends to handle androgyny and gender in a different way that we do. Um, because, you know, there are countless shows I could bring up where there is an androgynous character 
and um their gender is changed uh whenever that media becomes westernized and i guess the best way to describe it is it seems like um a man being feminine is way more acceptable um Mm -hmm. in japanese media than it is in western society that's Um, definitely true yeah so just just to just put this out there um in number six there there's a uh one of the main characters nizumi he cross dresses um another one of the main characters uh you know they keep dogs and their actual gender is never really revealed it's never even really discussed um in soul eater you have krona who's you know a very androgynous character um sometimes is referred to as male or female naruto you have haku um then in animal crossing even you have gracie gracie is originally like you know a very feminine giraffe and is a man in the japanese version when it's westernized gracie's female um so like like i was talking about cultural things before i don't know if howell is necessarily trans but he's definitely very comfortable with himself and comfortable in how he presents his gender um and i don't know if that's like a particular dialogue but i definitely think it's a cultural thing that we don't really have and sometimes can seem foreign um Mm -hmm. so i don't know as me um watching it as a little girl like you know not knowing much about any sort of social i don't know construct or requirement that kind of thing I, I even then I picked up on the fact that you know Howell is beautiful and he is a man that all like all the ladies like, but he's still very much feminine and very much like a traditional cisgender girl, especially in how he presents himself. Um, so I don't know. I definitely th- he I think it's very much up to interpretation. Um, so like. I don't know what what's everybody else's opinion because I see him as a as a yeah. man just as a feminine man, like not uh, conforming. I guess while you were talking about that, I picked up on the fact that Hal's kind of rep- reputation precedes himself, and that uh, people think that he's like eating like young girls' hearts and stuff, and uh, he is participating in these fights, and obviously he turns into a beast. Um, but when he's interacting with the people and that are close to him he's very like soft and kind and i guess there's this kind of contrast between like being really sensitive towards other people and caring and then you know kind of putting the armor on and going out to fight when you need to fight and there's kind of this contrast between like this kind of um you know being really tough and then being really sensitive uh that i kind of noticed because it's, re- it's really like contradicting where you know the first kind of bit of the movie where it's like oh you don't want to be near Hal oh he does all this awful shit and then you see him and then he's like really nice and like unbelievably so and you're like this is the guy that's supposed to be like really mean especially because yeah, they I keep mean, oh I'm sorry go ahead I, I mean like when I first experienced it you know experiencing it again again it's almost like, uh, is he just like this to to get people, you know, get right. get at people, or is he just actually yeah. nice? But 
you know, as he goes through the movie, he doesn't really show a separate face or even change much at all. Um, I think he becomes less superficial uh, as a person, but even to start off with, he didn't really seem all that superficial at all, other than like the, if I can't be beautiful, I might as well die thing. Life is worth living if you're not beautiful, which I agree. (laughs) I don't agree, (laughs) but it's fun to say that I agree. Um, I think the, the, the tragic arc of Howell is just that the character is set up as being this mysterious heartbreaker man, scary man with like a dark brooding past. And once it's revealed that like where his backstory goes in terms of like how he discovered Calcifer and how his soul became tied to this thing and how he developed magical skills and was like, I'm going to create beautiful things. And then of course the war economy was like, no, we need your magic and it's actually illegal for you to not help us. And so he's being like pulled between his desire to help others and his desire to like live the life that he wants to live and just be the person that he wants to be. Cause this is just like a thing that anime can do uh, Ryan that like not other sort of like visual media can do, which is just that they can have something really dramatic happen and just have it be to convey a mood instead of like having it mean something like no one has to address it. So um, I'm referring specifically to the scene where, Howell has the breakdown about his appearance and how his hair turned orange and he is next to Calcifer on on the fireplace and he just melts. And it's so like, it seems like you're, you keep expecting the characters to be like, what the heck? Why is he melting? But everyone's like, all right, pick him up. Let's get him upstairs. Like, let's do it. He's going to melt the fire. If we leave him here, they just, they just pick it up. Cause they're like, all it means is that he's sad and is brooding and depressed. You know, she says like any temper tantrum can be gotten over eventually. You're yeah. bearing the you're bearing the lead though. How so? The best line in that whole scene is uh the kid going, The last time he did this he got dumped by some yep. girl. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so they're just like, Oh, this happens. Like it's this isn't, this isn't weird that he's literally melting and turning into green goo and spilling everywhere. It's just he's a sad boy. <laughs> and they can visualize <laughs> that with, with literal yeah. goo. It's great. But I also really appreciate how they still take care of him, even though they're right, like yeah. You know, uh, come on, let's get you in the tub, let's clean you up, let's get you in your nice little bed and stuff like that. Even though they're like, you know, this happens, he's being dramatic, but they still very much take care of him. Yeah. You know, that that is heartwarming to me. Totally. And their and their and their interest in again, like stuff that doesn't seem magical or realistic, but just like the fifteen minute cleaning the house scene. Yes. Because it's like yeah. no, as someone who very much. Uh, is like if I if I'm feeling really depressed or anxious like cleaning my room is one of the best ways to immediately get over that um, seeing a scene like that where this like space and that Sophie goes into and who's what's the name of the boy because I okay we'll talk about this in a minute like how we watched the movie but um, I never understood his name in my uh, version of it the young boy that is living with Howell uh, um, Marco Marco I thought it's like it's like it has an L it's like Markle yeah yeah so but it kind of sounds like marco i don't know right right marco or markle uh is like going into the room and and talks about this that that great line where he says um she says don't you why do you hate wearing like why do you wear that disguise so much and he's like it's not a disguise it's magic like oh that's so that's so cool but then he takes her around the, the the house and it's all messy and it's just like oh a little kid lives here and like an an old man who's never around like this is kind of frustrating because you just can't find anything and everything's dirty 
and then she I loved I loved the scene where she's going to meet the queen and she's like you know how can be disguised as anything and like this this like air plane thing flies by and she's like too dramatic yeah <laughs> or, yeah or no like something bland goes past and it's like no it's probably more dramatic than that yeah. and, like an airship flies by and then she's like that's probably him <laughs> like the girl at the end of it like going Whoa! like yelling and stuff <laughs> yeah Sophie's yeah. like yep that's that that could very much be him totally and then the dog starts Heen. trailing her and it's I love that dog. Mean is the best character in this movie. Yes. Uh, but uh, she's just like, really? <laughs> really? And then he's like, Barf! Is... <laughs> My favorite yeah. thing is how the dog oh, wasn't even Howl. Yeah, yeah. right? Like, he's just like, oh, I guess that's Howl. And the, the viewer accepts that. And then like 10 minutes later, like, no, it's the queen's dog. What are you saying? <laughs> yeah. Howl is someone else. <laughs> I kept thinking yeah. Howl was going to be one of the servants because they looked like younger versions of him. Oh know. my god, but this the, the part where you realize who he is and that reveal is hilarious. Where he's the like soft-spoken yes. guard and the other guards are like, oh, nice double you got here. Oh, nice double you got there. Anyway, Man, that's bye. a really good one. And he just walks off. Yep. And it's like, hi, Hal. <laughs> he's just like, hey, Hal, stop. And he's like, uh. <laughs> stop. So, uh, this movie doesn't ever want to like make you stop to question something. Like, that was weird. She's like, no, it's, just go with it. Just keep rolling with it mm-hmm. as long as you like the characters that you're supposed to like and you know what's going on in the story you can follow it um i love i loved the the concept of the cow of the moving castle um and how there's the switch on the door that look kind of looks like a simon says board and you flip it and then you're in another area yeah because mm-hmm. it, it also like further conveys the fact that they are not tied to any section of the war Further, furthering the idea that like there's no right side because they don't have a base anywhere like if anything their base is the version of the castle that's in the wastelands um mm-hmm. but they have one version of the castle that's like a magic shop on one side of the conflict and then they have another that's like a uh, store on the opposite side um so they're like they don't belong anywhere so like the fact that it moves very much ties into their role in the in the conflict that is sort of sift- bubbling up in the background of this movie and again, it's like the way it ends is uh, they're like, uh, the king is the, the scarecrow is the king of the other country all along. And they're like, you should tell them to end the war. And he's like, okay. And then the queen of the opposite country is like, well, the war is over. Good. <laughs> like, yeah. Like... There's, no, there's no like argument. They're like, well, I guess we should probably stop. This is not good to keep going. Yeah. I wish it was like that in real life. <laughs> oh, that'd be so good. <laughs> Hey, do you feel like stopping? Yeah, I'm tired. All right. Anyways, <laughs> on. I wanted to ask y'all about what you thought of like the different voices because like I watched this movie with subtitles in Japanese. I watch most Miyazaki films that way, even though I think they have some of the best dubs in like all of anime because they're done like professionally by Disney. Um, I thought the voices were really good in Japanese, but a lot of the names were weird because they just kind of are. Uh, because it's we we didn't mention this earlier, but the film is a, technically an adaptation of a, of a novel, and mm-hmm. a lot of those names don't sound like they're meant to be read to be said out loud. They're just kind of like, oh, I would read that, but like Markle or whatever <laughs> doesn't sound like mm-hmm. a name you'd say, or Calcifer, which is more of a uh, reference to I think either myth or like a type of rock. I'm not sure. Um, Do you know the cast of the English? I looked version? into some of it. I know Lauren Bacall is the Witch of the West, which is ridiculous. That's Do so you good. know who Calcifer is? I don't actually. 
Oh my god, it's, it's Billy, Billy Crystal. Billy Crystal. Billy Crystal. Oh Crystal. <laughs> I need to find the dub of this movie. <laughs> oh, I especially like Calcifer in this movie. He's so cute. He's a good He's so talking sassy. fire. <laughs> um, I thought the voice was fine. I think we talked about earlier before we recorded of Christian Bale being like a jarring fit for Howell. But for the more we talk about his his character and how he like expresses his gender i actually kind of like that choice because christian bale has like that you know he's not doing a fucking batman voice but he has like a deep <laughs> voice um, imagine if he that'd was be, oh my god that'd be so and different. it's like really contrasted with his appearance and i actually really like that the more i think about it yeah it I works because you're yeah expressing differently go ahead kate yeah I mean, personally, like, I have always... I See, the weird thing is, I have watched every single Studio Ghibli film in English, like, with the English dub, whereas every single other anime I watch, I very much prefer the subbed version with the um, original Japanese audio. So, I don't know. I I definitely think there's, there's a lot more higher quality uh, substance going into the English dubs, um, because I've personally never had a problem with them. And I'm kind of elitist, so when it comes to, like, um, audio quality and, like, how dubs sound, because, um, like, for example, there's an anime that I've been trying to watch for a few months now that got removed from Netflix in the middle of me trying to watch it, but I can't find it online anywhere except for the dub, but I'm refusing to watch it because it just sounds so awful to me. I don't have that same experience with, um, with Howl's Moving Castle at all. I definitely think, like, you know, all of the characters to me seem to suit um, the, or the voice actors seem to suit the characters, just in like inflection and stuff like that. Um, like, I've always had a positive experience with the Studio Ghibli dubs, and especially Howl's Moving Castle. So, I don't know. Um, I'd Sorry, have to yeah. be the sub first to like the you know maybe i will hate the dub after watching the sub based on the quality um mm-hmm. but i don't know yet i think the sub just feels more distinctly like this is a film about japanese ideals is what happens with me right. i think that all of the dubs especially for, like we said for ghibli films are really good uh and it's just like I, I in particular i really like the person who voiced um sophie whose name i'm not even gonna try to pronounce because i can't i'm bad with japanese names but she very much it. conveys the like do you want to give it a shot uh, I'd have to look, get it on my screen first, but okay. I will. I will do it. Um, but yeah, she she very much gets across this idea that like Sophie is a character who is a young soul in an old body, um, and and just like as soon as she is transformed into an older woman, it's like every person is like, hey, old hey, old lady, old lady, how you doing? Which is more like a Japanese honorific thing that they just translate in the subtitles as like old lady, um, but mm-hmm. everyone treats Normally her with they respect. Say- they normally say grandma, like, like um, that. That's the word they actually use. Is they call her grandma, grandma in yeah. Japanese. Well, at least I don't know specifically, but that's typically like a cultural thing. Like they'll be if there's an old man, they'll call him grandpa. If it's an old woman, they'll call her grandma. Right, and that's a fairly like the way that people refer to others um, relates to the theme of getting old, and that's another reason that I was like, oh, the hearing this in Japanese was interesting because they do that differently like the way that they use pronouns and and, and honorifics for like terms of endearment 
Um, but she's just so like, she has all these lines, especially early on when she's first going to Howl's castle about, uh, like, Oh, when I'm old, everything is better. Like there, there's very little uh, talk in early on about her being sad that she's old. She kind of accepts her position in life. She's like, huh, I'm way more clever. I just managed to trick that scarecrow instantly. Um, I'm still fairly spry and my back hurts, but I kind of just like understand the world better and I'm less sad about boring things. And it's just this very optimistic look at like what it's like to get older. Like it doesn't have to be um, debilitating and sad. Uh, it just can be about accepting the way that things are in the world. And I think that's really profound. And it's so cool that there's a film that like, a, especially for a, a Miyazaki film, that to like star an old woman character is really unique. Like you don't see a lot of elderly women in leading roles. Uh, even though Sophie kind of flits back and forth towards the end um katie and i were talking off mic about how it's really cool that even when she gets really excited and starts to de-age her hair stays gray because young women with gray hair that's like a really cool aesthetic Mm -hmm. and they don't like want to confuse the viewer too much because there's shots where they'll literally like de-age her for one second and then age her back up and you're like whoa did i just whoa (laughs) because they don't change the hair color and they don't really she's still fundamentally the same person Chieko Baisho is the voice for Sophie. There you go. Wow. That wasn't that hard. Based on what I was reading. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. But yeah. So she's great. She's she was my favorite in the in the Japanese version. Mm-hmm. What why okay, there's some lore questions. Why does Markle uh wear the disguise to look like an old man? I don't know. Um, maybe because he thinks people won't take him seriously at the shop if he's a kid. Well, he said he was pl- practicing his magic, right? Yeah, that too. I, so. I I sort of I thought they were maybe just like making a point that yeah, it's people look at you completely differently when you're older, and even though it's just a very simple glamour that he's putting on with this like hat that transforms when he puts it over his head, him and him into a young, a small old man. Uh, it is still like. Oh, when I'm older, people will listen to me. Um, and mm-hmm. ca- and the relationship between the witch and uh, Calcifer, which is like s- subtly hinted at as soon as she comes onto the ship, but or the the yeah. castle, where she's just like, oh, what a nice fire! Like, what a beautiful fire! Also, I have a huge crush on Howl. I'm like super yeah. hardcore crushing on Howl. And then you're like, oh, you're saying the same thing in both of these cases, because the thing yeah. you love about him is his heart, and like so many hard relationships, you want to take that from him, and not like entwine with it which is a hard mm-hmm. thing to accept when you're in a relationship with someone is that you can't like uh, you can't just like absorb them into yourself and be like well we're all we're two we can't be two distinct things anymore she wants to take that heart and keep it which leads to a lot of conflict damn i didn't pick up on that <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean just the like i want to steal your heart and, and also her talking about like i don't want anyone else to have right. it i deserve it is kind of like right yeah a metaphor for relationships and the the stairs scene like where they're climbing the stairs of the Queen's Castle. Oh my mm-hmm. goodness. What a great so scene. Good. It's so good. For people who don't know what we're talking about, you should watch the movie. What are you doing? But also, uh, <laughs> like... Sorry for spoiling all well, of yeah, it. Well, yeah. We yeah. tell people what the thing is. That's, so that shouldn't happen. But uh, Sophie and the, the witch are like kind of racing to get to the top of the stairs to talk to the Queen. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know why they're racing. Um I think the queen wants to go there because she has a job. I don't think it's that they're racing. They're just having a hard time getting up the damn stairs. Yeah. Both of them. Because they're just both old, yeah. 
I think and, they're um, also like kind of competing with each other anyway, just based yeah. on like their differences. And you know, Sophie's upset because it's like you turn me into this old woman. So right, right. So they're like climbing, and the old woman is getting older as she's climbing and just like sweating and turning into like a blob of sad <laughs> and Sophie gets to the top and doesn't gloat she just like waits and she's like come on you can do it you're almost up here like, yeah that oh. was my favorite part how like yeah. you know Sophie gets to the top and is like come on come on you got this keep going it's like so, why isn't someone helping her you should help her <laughs> <laughs> that too right but it's they're also all just watching. interesting how as a villain she doesn't stay evil you know or like I mean in a way you know even when she's like quote unquote nicer She's like, you know, that heart is mine, blah, blah, blah. But she looks she looks nicer. And, you know, she's not actively trying to get at people or cast mean spells on them and that sort of thing. I think I her greatest flaw is just that she's transition. selfish. Yeah, it is an interesting transition because her, her whole thing is like instead of being like Sophie, whose life is obsessed with or her whole thing is that she's obsessed with helping others and like making others feel better. Whereas the queen is very much like, I want a thing. She gets to the top of the stairs and finds the one chair. And she's like, finally chair and takes the chair and is punished for it. Whereas Sophie, like one scene later, like they were clearly making the connection is offered a seat and then takes it after being offered it by the queen. And then she doesn't get in trouble because again, the like Miyazaki's obsession with politeness and like being a good person without expecting anything in return. Um, Mm -hmm. It's so, it's a rich film for sure. Probably the like most dense yeah. Miyazaki film that I've ever seen. Which isn't to say well, Spirited Away is pretty much is pretty heavy, but it's also just a kid's like fairy tale movie. Um Howl's Moving Castle has so, so, so much going on. And then it all ends real nice too. It's just like uh the castle is just like a piece of wood with some legs. <laughs> uh but we're all happy. <laughs> Maybe yeah. it's the friends we made along the way. <laughs> um that's two in yeah. one episode. <laughs> two references to that line, uh, and and yeah, and then everyone gets out. Like the, even the queen gets out, and the and the the scarecrow is like, "I'm the king, bye." <laughs> that ending is really abrupt. It's, though, yeah, extremely. It is yeah. very much so. It's like what? It's just like it's just like okay. He turns into the prince, and then uh, she's just like. Everything's good uh, now. I'm sorry. Sophie is just Sophie's just like, hey, can we have the hard back? And she's like, okay. Yeah. Since you asked. <laughs> and then everything is okay. Do you think the kissing was like a significant, uh, like some sort of display? Because Sophie kisses like everybody at the end. Did did either mm. of you like notice that? Because she kisses I did notice the witch. That, yeah. You know, she kiss, kiss, kisses everybody. <laughs> and I'm like, is that something that I didn't really like, pick up on? Like, what is that something specific? I didn't really pick up on that. I did notice that a lot of kissing was happening. I just sort of uh, chopped. What is the word I'm looking for? Copped it up to? Threw it up to? Chalked it. Chalked, chalked it, up. it up. Thank you. I sort of just chalked it up to, like, the young girl gives the kiss and that makes pe- that makes older men happy or older people happy. It's just a nice, it's like, oh, that's really nice. And everyone gets to have one and we're all equal and fair and fun. Um, And she is, again, all about, like, giving other people things. Um, Mm -hmm. Her mom comes by and she, like, helps her out and says nice things to her. And then the mom is just like, damn it, I feel bad because I totally just betrayed my daughter and just gave away her position to to the queen. But, like, 
sorry, got a new husband. Bye. Like <laughs> Sophie's mom is kind of the worst. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I don't know if that was intentional or not. I was just like, ugh, I'm beyond you. Because she accepts it very quickly. She's like, honey, you're old now. And she's like, yep. I'm way old. It's really bad. I'm like, spell. <laughs> and she's like, what are you going to do? Can't you come back to the house? And she's like, no, I'm staying here. And her mom's like, you know, that's fair. <laughs> okay, bye. <laughs> Just leaves her. <laughs> like, oh, okay. I guess that was taken care of. And she I has that think... sister, Letty. Yeah. Go ahead, oh, sorry. yeah. Uh, beauty is is interesting um, in this movie because, you know, Sophie's, like, initially is supposed to be relatively plain um and yet like ryan you brought earlier you brought up earlier sophie gets hit on almost constantly um and not only that but there's you know powell is so extra and then sophie's sister and sophie's mom but you know even at the end howell's like you know there's the gray hair which people associate as like old people and old people are undesirable and all this nonsense but howell tells her like your hair is beautiful. It looks like starlight and yes. that kind of thing. Um, I also, I, I don't know. I thought it was really interesting how they, how they kind of covered beauty and like attraction and that sort of stuff overall, like not just in Howell's androgyny, but also like the differences between Sophie and, you know, Sophie's family, but she also gets this sort of attention from other people. Yeah, there is really like a big juxtaposition when Sophie is younger uh, and how people treat her then and then uh, how people treat Sophie when she's older with like a lot more respect, which is really interesting. And uh, it's yeah, that's that's a like respect your elders kind of message. And also, yeah, the she's like a clever old woman because she sleeps by the fire or fake sleeps when someone walks in and then later the witch does the exact same thing. Cause they're both like, Oh, old people are super clever and smart. Like they're not, they don't need to be sad, like be- unfortunate existences. You can, you can be old and be like way clever and have people like you more because of that. Um, there's a thing I wanted to say about Sophie as a character that I can't put my finger on. She's just so, she like accepts her position in life very easily, which I really, aspire to be able to do like to just have your life change one day and be like well this is how things are and from a personal perspective that was how that was the thing i took away from her arc was like learning to move on and just be like and accept the new way that things are and the new normal um but also like when you're young and when sophie's young so much is expected of her and so many people take advantage of her and then by the time when she's old it's not the same experience people don't expect a lot out of her and within that kind of freedom of how people treated her she was able to find herself her desire like the thing she actually wanted to do not do for other people yeah i I, yeah and and if i understood it correctly the she would like de-age because um like howell said something nice to her but then if he said something like you're beautiful and then she got excited, like she got kind of vain for a second, that would tend to, that would age her back up. And I sort of like this idea that like the thing she wants is to be comfortable in herself. And as soon as she gets vain and like starts to, you know, there's a word in Arabic for what I'm trying to get at, but I can't translate it easily. This is so weird that I'm thinking like this. <laughs> oh, just drop it. Please just drop uh, some Arabic. Shaifi halak dir, which just means like it, it literally translates to translates to she sees herself a lot. 
Oh, I'm so happy. Sees within herself <laughs> one. Uh, but it more refers to just like she is absorbed in her own existence. And it's just like, oh, I'm finally someone thinks I'm beautiful because she starts out like with the Cinderella story of like, I work in my mom's sad hat store. But now someone called me beautiful. But like that vanity is actually what's going to make you age, sadly. Um, yeah. That was cohesive. I don't know. It just, yeah. yeah, it definitely was. Is there anything else? We covered a lot, I feel like. Yeah, we did. There was something I was thinking about, but I definitely lost that thought. It's <sighs> about Sophie as a character also. Again, very just like a dense movie. Highly recommend yeah. it if people hear this and are just like, what the hell are they talking about? Because we didn't get into any of the like beat by beat stuff. There's just like so much. There's, yeah, there's so much. There's a huge chase scene in a plane that almost crashes. And then there's a scene where they try to get the plane out of the castle and it like sputters and they almost die. <laughs> yeah. There's a scene where Howell like float make the first scene of the movie where he makes her float across the city and it's beautiful. It's it's a feast for the eyes, absolutely. Definitely. You could totally gorgeous film. You could totally watch this movie with no sound on and be able to enjoy it because it's a feast, like I said. Um I remembered what I was going to say. Uh the scene where you know they're out in this field and she, you know she's looking at like the water and she's like yeah you can have this really nice peaceful feeling when you're older i'm like goals and you were talking about how she accepts you know kind of accepts her fate and is like yep i'm old now like instead of being like oh my god i'm old she's like ah oh, wow i feel so peaceful here mm-hmm. like i finally have like this sort of peaceful feeling that i didn't have when i was young like good on you sophie for having such a broad at perspective yeah it's triumphant as someone who constantly fears the future that's like my number one thing and constantly over prepares for the future to see a character that is just thrusted into it and is like oh this is fine this might even be better okay i'm into this yeah <laughs> um that's really inspiring and good it made me feel a good thing yeah is that it i think so yep awesome and that's gonna do it for this podcast we got some housekeeping business to take care of obviously uh we have a long list of people who shared the last episode so i want to thank brenna deborah chris mary zufi and apple cider witch thank you all so much for sharing the last episode and we got an itunes review from brenna as well uh And I'm just going to read this because it's just the nicest thing in the world. And thank you so much, Renner, for sending this in. Uh, This review reads, Top-notch podcast, five stars. This is is such a great podcast. Ryan, Alan, and Katie have a great rapport, and they all have insightful things to say about the pop culture pieces they examine on the show. It's so great listening to them talk about what sorts of media they enjoy, but even their criticism is delivered with grace and humor. The sound quality is also really good. Thank you. I put a lot of work into that. So, all around top-notch podcast. Keep up the great work, y'all. I look forward to listening. Thank you so much. That's so nice. Thank you. Wow, 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 wow. You're the best. That made my day (laughs) when I read that. I know. It was incredible. Thanks. That's the stuff that keeps us going, frankly. I mean, seriously. True. Um, so yeah, if you want to review us on iTunes 
and other places. We're on Google Play now because they opened up podcasts there. Uh, so we're there now. We're on iTunes. We're on Stitcher. We're anywhere you can get podcasts. And you can send in pod. Uh, you can send in podcasts. You can send in <laughs> questions and comments at firesidefriendspodcast at gmail.com. And then you can follow us on Twitter at Podcast Fireside. Uh, Katie, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at Katie M. Rose. Um, and then on Tumblr, my URL is frorfon.tumblr.com, which is f-r-o-r-e-fon.tumblr.com. Alan? I can be found at twitter.com slash Ibrahim, which is spelled A-L-L-E-N-I-B-R-A-H-I-M. And um, I don't tweet a lot, but when I do, it's you know usually about some sort of dumb thing. And uh, I have a podcast separately called scape chats which you can find wherever you listen to podcasts about the tv show farscape it's great a lot of fun gonna put out new episodes soon and uh yeah that's that's where you can find me and you can find me on twitter at taco detective i have a blog that is tacodetective.com and i also write for it's mix actually that's it's mix.lgbt itsmx.lgbt they have a patreon it's a really good uh, website for non-binary folks to just submit anything that they want and get their voices heard. And I think that's a podcast. So thank you, everybody, for listening. Good luck out there. And don't forget to take care of yourself. See ya. Eli, they say they want, well, Alan said he wants you as a guest on our podcast. Not right now, but. Yes, you are. What am I, what, what is there that's interesting about I don't know, you can just have a say-so on something. A say-so? Yeah. You can talk about something. Hmm. (laughs) You can talk about without his dinos, would Godzilla be able to beat the dinos? What? Yeah, okay. Um, Can I have context for this? Yeah, there was a person who um, who made a comment on... Do you know what ARC is? Like, ARC Survival Evolved or whatever? No, it's, I don't. It's a video game where there's a bunch of dinosaurs. And Eli was looking up, um, like, the, you know, comments and reviews on the Steam game itself. And somebody commented... With all these dinos, will Godzilla be able to defeat the dinos? And like, I don't know. Eli was like, why did someone decide to comment this? Like, Godzilla isn't even in the game at all. Godzilla has nothing to do with this. And um, and they also spelled Godzilla. We say Godzilla because it, they spell it G-O-D-Z-I-L-L-E. So we put it in a text-to-speech program and it read it like, Hmm, with all these dinos, will Godzilla be able to defeat the dinos? So we just say that now. <laughs> so Eli's name on Skype is Godzilla, and it's like this really awful <laughs> photo of Godzilla. So.
Yeah. That, that should be his amazing. segment on the podcast, is what I was saying. <laughs> Are you ready? Yeah. yeah. <laughs>